Good to be here with you and good to be on your screen in this Sunday morning. Have you ever noticed how the TV and movie industries love dark seasons of life? Drama really sells, whether it's financial ruin or a cancer diagnosis or a prodigal son who has strayed away or death of a loved one. TV loves this stuff. I I was watching one show, and it was a fiction, fantasy show that might not be your deal, but I liked it. And I saw that 17.5 million viewers had tuned in. And I thought, wow, what's going on here? So so I watched the show, and it was, you know, your normal adventure guys in a war settling scores and stuff, but it was also set in this land with no light and no color. A shadow fell that made everything even darker, and people loved it. We love to use media and TV to kind of get at these dark seasons of life. Comedians also have long used dark seasons of life to kind of connect with people. I heard one guy say recently, he said, uh, during the pandemic, my brother has really been struggling to find work in his field His field is a mime. And so he started a podcast, and it was even worse. (laughs) But why do we use art to come at these hard seasons of life? Well, I think it's because if we came at them at a frontal assault, it would just be too heavy. And so we like to sneak up, shoot sideways glances, at the hardest things. And that has some value, but the problem is, in our darkest seasons, they they come suddenly. And when they do, they can just smack you in the face, and we find ourselves unprepared. I was walking in my neighborhood this week, and I, I walked up and saw a friend. He's in his 30s. And I noticed as he came out in the driveway, he was just barely hobbling just to get out there to talk to me. And, of course, he's got a recent diagnosis, and he started the treatment. And on his Facebook page, there are words like, I'm not going to quit, and my team is going to beat this. He was slapped in the face, completely caught off guard. This Friday, I was working on this sermon, and I woke up, early and was getting ready, and then I got the text at the, a weird time, you know, you know that's going to be bad, and sure enough, friends that I'd known from long ago had been living over the past 24 hours, their worst nightmare, you know, we had the flooding Thursday and Wednesday in Wake County, and they had a little 11-year-old son, about same age as one of mine, and he was out by the river, and he was playing with some kids, and, and then he wasn't. He disappeared. Hours later, they found his body drowned. Smacks in the face. What can you do in those moments? The only thing you can do is cry out to God. Pour your heart out to the living God. That's our only recourse, and Here at TCC, next few weeks, we're going to do a sermon series on the book of Psalms. 
And in the book of Psalms, what we'll find is he addresses a variety of human emotions. Confidence and victory and thanksgiving and pilgrimage, joy and praise. But today, we're going to look on the dark side. Psalms of lament that deal with your moments of deepest, darkest pain. And we're going to get at it very pastorally, trying to answer the question, how do I pray in my darkest moments? How do I pray in my darkest moments? And with that in mind, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 42. You're going to want to keep them open. Psalm 42. And actually, as we look at Psalm 42, there's a lot of reasons to see how it is connected with the following psalm, Psalm 43, structurally and otherwise they're just related. So we're going to tackle them together because they're meant to go as a set. So Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 we're going to look at. Uh, but before we do, I just ask that you'll join me in prayer. When you talk about pain, this feels like you're on sacred ground. So let's just pray together. Father, lead us now through the white-capped waves of tremendously painful subject matter, the same way you lead us beside still waters. Shepherd us as we crack the doors open into the haunted houses of our past. Prepare a sweet table for us in this moment, especially for those of us walking close to the cliff of the valley of the shadow of death. Overflow our cups as we cast with sobriety and clear-headedness our views into our own dark shadows. And God, as we look upon your word, remind our hearts that we will one day dwell in your house forever and ever. Amen. As we arrive at this text today, I just want you to notice briefly how the song is set up, how it's structured. Like most of the songs we sing in our worship today, the song has a chorus, a refrain, a part that's repeated with the main themes in it. And so I'm going to use that today to be our target. In other words, I think in times of pain, we need to have a worthy target to shoot at. We might not always hit it, and that's okay, but we want to pick a worthy target and shoot at it. And you can see it here in verse 5 of Psalm 42. Also, it's repeated in verse 11, and then in Psalm 43, verse 5, it's the refrain. It's repeated over and over because the psalmist wants you to get it. It wants you to arrive here. Here it is. Why? Are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I just want you to notice here the gritty realism of that first sentence. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? This is not a mountaintop song, is it? It's a song for the valleys. And I recall several times over the past 15 years having the privilege of sitting with people in moments of great trial and pain. And oftentimes the man or the woman 
will just be weeping and crying and then they'll look up and they'll say, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm a blubbery mess. And I'm thinking, no! It does no good to deny that we're hurting. It's okay. It's human to mourn like this. The psalm doesn't deny it. So if you're coming to the Bible today, have no fear. He's not going to whitewash anything in this first sentence. He says, oh, my soul is troubled. But see how the first sentence is a question of introspection. The psalmist is talking to himself. He's singing a song to himself. It's one of those conversations that rattle around in your heads when you go through really intense, hard times. And he answers himself. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in God. You see that give and take that he has even with his, his own consciousness here? I think that's what we should shoot for. I used to, when I was in college, work with some lifeguards who were guarding a wave pool. That was hip in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if they still do that as much. But wave pools were really cool. You would sit there and it would be still waters and then all of a sudden the waves would start. And it was fine when the waters were still and you're watching the younger kids that might struggle a little bit. Man, when the wave machine started, all you could do was get a shot of them and hope to see their head bob bob back up because the rays would and they would trowel and you'd be like oh oh and you'd have to wait seconds and then oh there is his head again and I think that's the way the psalmist would have you deal with your pain embrace your own searing pain and yet every once in a while bob to the top of it and try to hope in God so that's going to be our target today so how can this psalm help us well Here's the first thing. We're going to use it. These psalms were to be sung and they were also for teaching instruction. So we're going to use it in those ways. First, we use it to sing a song to Jesus. Sing a song to Jesus. Look at the first three verses together here with me. Beginning in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you Oh God, don't skip over the last two words there. Oh God, this reminds us that this psalm is a prayer to God. He's talking to God. It's vitally important in the midst of your deep pain. Before you seek professional help, before you call your mom, before you blast it out on social media, lay it before God. Lay it before God. Say, oh God. Pray to Him. I don't think we do that enough. It's a habit to lay your pain before God. Sing your song to Jesus. Bear your soul. You will not regret it. As best we can tell, this writer is painting a picture in the Old Testament of a priest who's been exiled from his city. His city is Jerusalem. He works there in the temple. But as the, the writer is writing, he's been exiled and he has no access. And that's causing him to mourn and to weep in intense pain. And the original Old Testament saints would pray their prayers. They were praying to Yahweh, the God of the covenant, who pledged to keep them and save them 
and to send a divine king one day who would rescue them as New Testament saints after the cross. When we pray, we pray to the mediator of that pledge, the one who served it, Jesus Christ himself. So we can sing our songs directly to Jesus. Now look at verse 1 again. Because here the psalmist shares in pictures a glimpse of his authentic pain. The image is of a fawn panting because there's no flowing water. We used to use this psalm in college and it was kind of like a, a test in a weird way with each other. We would, we would say, ah, I love so God, God so much that I'm panting for him, just like this psalm. But that's not the picture though. It's, not, it, it's a drought kind of feeling. The deer is thirsty. There's no more water flowing. And that's the best way that the author knows how to describe his heart. It's dried up. His soul is cracking. But in the midst of all that, here's the dagger. As he's crying out to God because he's in exile, in this valley he cannot find God. That's the dagger. God is silent in the midst of his pain. He says, my soul pants for you. He's panting for God because he's not feeling it. And I know that you have these moments. You have pain and then it's compounded. You feel like you've been abandoned by God himself. That's the experience. As best the writer can tell, God may not even care. He shares the same feeling if you look down in Psalm 43, verse 2. The psalmist says, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? That's raw. I felt that way. Now look back in chapter 42, verse 2, for more of his self-description. He says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I want somebody here who's real. I need somebody here who's living and near me. When shall I come and appear before God, and when are you going to show up? This is when I need you the most. And he's not feeling God. And the next image is gripping. Look at this verse 3. Just close your eyes and imagine this pain. Verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. Some images, metaphors, they stand on their own feet. His diet is his tears. That's all he's eating. Day and night. And to make matters worse, he's also being mocked. Keep reading in verse 3. Tears are my food while they say to me, day and night, where is your God? Now who are the they who's mocking him? We're not sure, but probably in parallel to verse 10 below, they're the hurtful people in his life. You know what I'm talking about when I say that too, right? Could be even somebody he's tried to minister to. 
They're looking to him saying, oh, you love the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? How's that working out for you? Where's your God? He's being mocked. Or if you read that verse again, there's another way to read it. Another way to understand the they in that sentence, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they, my tears, say to me all day long, where is your God? You could read it that way. His own tears ridicule him. Ever felt like that? Hopelessness is now the tenant of his soul, and the rent paid is pure anguish. Author C.S. Lewis writes about such pain in his book, A Grief Observed. I recommend it if you're going through a hard time, A Grief Observed. He writes this, No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. Yet I want others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and be here but not talk to me. When the storms of life flood all that you know to be good and right and pure, you're left with two choices. You can sing your song to Jesus or not. The psalmist is singing his song to God. Now, what the psalmist sings here in shadow form, we see even more clearly in the New Testament. Let's just look here at verse 2 again. And I want to look backwards at the phrases we find in verse 2. If you work your way backwards, you see, When shall I come and appear before God? In the New Testament, in 1 Peter 3.18, we read this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God in our torment Our only hope to appear before God is in Jesus. So you sing your song to Jesus. In our text, the singer longs for, if you go back one more phrase, what's he long for? A living God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul marvels to the church, you turn to God from idols to serve what? The living and true God, Jesus, who delivers to know Jesus as living is to turn to Him during a crisis situation. Not to lifeless idols or to other created beings, first and foremost. Turn to Jesus. He is the essence of life. Sing your song to Jesus. First of verse 2, the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God. In John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. How did he say that? He knows your pain. Jesus knows. You sing, 
I can't even feel you. Are you even real? Jesus sings, come to me and drink. You sing, but I need answers. Jesus sings back, come to me and drink. You sing, I can barely breathe, much less get out of bed this morning. Jesus sings, come to me and drink. You sing, but my tears are my food. Jesus says, come to me and drink. We must go to Jesus in our hardest seasons. He is there. Sing a song to Jesus. That's it. That's the tweet. Sing a song to Jesus in your darkest moments. Now, get this. There's a second way that the psalm helps you. Because as you sing to Jesus, know that you are also singing a song by Jesus. Okay? You are also singing a song by Jesus. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Look back, Psalm 42, verse 4. Look what the psalmist said in the middle of his pain. Here's what he says. These things I remember. Now note this idea of remembering, because I want to jump back to it in a minute. These things I remember. As I pour out my soul, this is what I remember as I'm pouring out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Remember his job, his occupation was a priest. So he's remembering back to the times when he had happy moments with God in his work. Verse 5, that leads us to our chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation, in verse 6, and my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. Again, he's remembering. I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mazar. That's where he's located now. Even though I'm outside of Jerusalem, I remember you. Verse 7. More cutting language. Deep calls to deep at the roars of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. Now, what's so important about all of this remembering language when you're going through pain? How does that help us? Well, don't miss this. It's key to dealing with your own trauma. In the depths of your despair, you might not find God but you can always remember Him. If in the present God is silent, train your soul to seek God in the past. If you can't find Him in the now, find Him in the back then. That's what the psalmist does. It's what he's modeling for you. Look at verse 4. In his past, he would go and worship with a multitude of people and they would sing praises of joy and then Verse 6, he's more succinct. He simply prays to God, I remember you. I remember you. With laser-tight focus, he's meditating on Yahweh, the God of the covenant. 
I wish I could tell you all the details of when my children were born, but I can't. It's fuzzy. But I can remember one thing. It's the severe trial of not getting sleep at night when you have a new child time after time. I remember going through that. I remember with one child, he slept through the night at six weeks. I thought that's a chance, man. That's great. But then with another child, no names will be mentioned, it was two years, two years before he slept through the night. Every night, i got to have sleep too. Every night I'm waking up, and I remember laying there one night, just in a haze. You know how it is when you're waking up. It's in a haze laying there. I can't go back to sleep, and I'm thinking, I know I had another child who got through this. I know that this must end because I've seen it before. My other child finally slept through the night. And today, the psalmist is pushing you to remember Emulate the psalmist and remember God in Jesus. Remember God in Jesus. Particularly, I want you to remember that this type of real life agony was not foreign to your Lord Jesus. It was his song too. Okay, As one writer put it, Jesus came as heir not only of David's throne, but also of David's prayers. From his distress to his deliverance, from his laments to his praises, these are Jesus' songs. And we see this in the New Testament. If we take the time to look at Jesus in the Bible, we can see this. Remember the time when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The last passion week of his life. What's he going to do? What's important to Jesus? Because he knows the time is short. The clock is ticking. So he arrives in Jerusalem and he begins to teach people. And as he's speaking, you can see themes from this very psalm on his lips. He's living this psalm. For instance, in John 12, 27. Thinking about in this psalm and in your life, you have downcast emotions the psalmist wrote, Where are you cast down? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you cast down? Verse 5, 11 and 5. Jesus sings, Now is my soul troubled. That's John 12, 27. Using language right from this psalm. Now my soul is troubled. What about desiring vindication? When you're hurt, we often desire just to be vindicated. Psalmist 43.1. How does he express it? He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. How does Jesus sing the same song? John 12.31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's vindication. He's going to cast Satan out. Jesus sang this song. What about the theme of light? In 43, verse 3, the psalmist cries out, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them lead me. 
John 12, 35, Jesus himself says, the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, let the darkness not overtake you. Jesus was living this song. As mentioned above, one note that you hear over and over and over in this psalm is the note of isolation or rejection, both by God and by man. Look at uh, verse 9 in Psalm 42. And that's repeated just four verses later. Verse 9, 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? See how he feels isolated? He feels rejected? But we need look no further than the cross to see that in the life of Jesus, right? He knew that song, Isolation, Rejection. He sang that one. What was his cry? Two gospel authors do us the brutally good service of sharing what Jesus actually said as he was dying. What was his cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he's not quoting our psalm here directly. That honor goes to Psalm 22. But Psalm 43 and Psalm 22, they have the same dark yet hopeful melody. There's a connection here. R.C. Sproul is helpful in describing this dying utterance of Christ. Listen to what he writes. He writes, Jesus as he's dying and he's saying these words that sound a lot like Psalm 42 and 43. Jesus is expressing the agony of unanswered supplication. Unanswered, Jesus feels forgotten of God. He's also expressing the agony of unbearable stress. Remember the psalmist language? Psalmist says, deep is calling out to deep. Jesus is living it. It is the hellish cry uttered when the undiluted wrath of God overwhelms the soul. It's the heart-piercing, heaven-piercing, hell-piercing. Further, Jesus is expressing the agony of unmitigated sin. All the sins of the elect and the hell that they deserve for eternity are laid upon Him. And Jesus is expressing the agony of unassisted solitariness. In his hour of greatest need comes a pain unlike anything the son has ever experienced, his father's abandonment. And when Jesus most needs encouragement, no voice cries from heaven, this is my beloved son. No angel is sent to strengthen him. No, well done, my good and faithful servant, resounds in his ears. The women who supported him are silent. The men, the disciples, they're cowardly and terrified. They fled. Feeling disowned by all, Jesus endures the way of suffering alone, deserted and forsaken in utter darkness. So let's be clear today on one thing. When you are at your absolute face on the floor, heart ripped out moments, you sing a song that was sung by Jesus. 
He gets you. He knows you. And he has sunk even lower. But, but while you're remembering the cross, recall that these were not Jesus' only words from the cross. John mentions some others in his gospel. Later, Jesus will simply state, he's done crying out, now he's just going to declare the wonderful words, it is finished. It is finished. At the lowest point in his life, he declares that his work is complete. Your sins are paid for. It is finished. Here's another dash of scroll. He says here, with Jesus as our substitute, God's wrath is satisfied and God can justify those who believe in Jesus. Christ's penal suffering, therefore, is vicarious. He suffered on our behalf. Now, this next part is really important. He did not simply share our forsakenness, but he saved us from it. He endured it for us, not with us. You weren't there with him on the cross. You're immune to condemnation and to God's anathema because Christ bore it for you in that outer darkness. Golgotha secured our immunity, not mere sympathy. That's good news. Don't miss it. In your despair, you might turn to the Psalms and say, hey, this guy gets me. He empathizes with me. He has sympathy for me. And that's good. But how much greater to turn to the psalm and realize, hey, this is Jesus' song. And he grants me not just sympathy, but immunity in his death and his resurrection. Not immunity from the immediate pain, but immunity from the forever isolation from God that your pain is just a drop of. Because of what Christ has done, you're immune to forever forsakenness, right? Eternal loneliness cannot be your future. You'll not be broken forevermore. That's a different song than all of those who do not believe. They will be separated from God by their sin for eternity. But since your sin is removed, you're now a child of God, ushered into His loving arms, and your Father will hold you forever and ever and ever. Because this is the song sung by Jesus. So, as we work through the song, we've learned to sing a song to Jesus in the midst of our pain, that we sing a song that by Jesus, He actually sung it Himself. Thirdly, I just want to make it clear how today we sing a, we sing a song with Jesus. All right, We sing a song with Jesus. Now look at Psalm 43. I just want to read these five verses, Psalm 43. Let you just soak in it. Just rinse yourself off in this psalm. Psalm 43, verse 1. The writer says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people from the deceitful and unjustful man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Notice this. 
He's towards the end of this two-part song, and he's still hurting, okay? His sorrow has not been removed. He still feels lonely. He is still abandoned. It's confusing to him, but hey, that's okay. That's real. That's human. That's okay. Please don't hear me say today, if you read a psalm and you pray it, that magic will happen. No, something more real and more gritty and much more encouraging can happen. Now, look in verse 3. The writer is going to begin to call out with an eye towards the future. He's been remembering. Now he looks towards the future. Verse 3, he says, Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Can't do it on my own. I need you to lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Then the next verse, there's our target. Real expressions of pain seasoned with hope. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise Him, my God, and my salvation. Now look at verses 3 and 4 to see how his song of anguish leads to hope. He says, God, send me your light and your truth to bring me to you. I need somebody to carry me there to you. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the truth. He'll carry you there. By His Spirit, He has united Himself to you so that you can sing this song with Jesus. A mysterious union between man and God accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Now look at this. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is going to write about this union. And lo and behold, where does he start? He doesn't start with the awesomeness of our lives when he's talking about union with Christ. He starts with our lowliness. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 28, Paul says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Ever feel like that in your pain? God, I am... Not. That's all I can say about myself. This hurts so bad that I'm, I'm just not. God chose that. To bring to nothing things that are. Some things have to die if you are to see God. In your despair, you know what it means to be brought to nothing. There's a sense of unworthiness, a sense of shame to the feeling sometimes. Verse 29 gives us hope. So that no human, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, here's the words, you are in Christ Jesus. The New Testament talks about your unity with Christ. Sometimes it says you're just in Jesus. You've been dumped into Him. Sometimes it will say Jesus is in you. Both pictures are helpful. Here he says you are in Christ Jesus became something to you. What did he become? He became wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification. Don't miss the last word. Jesus became redemption 
That means to secure a release of people by making a payment, a price. In his death, Jesus bought you from bondage of sin and death. At your conversion, you were unbound from evil and you were wrapped up in Jesus. You're united to him. Paul talks about this in Romans 6.5. He said, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. How can we make this work? Well, this time of year, as the leaves are changing, I really miss my hometown in Tennessee. We had lots of mountains and hills and lots of leaves. It was really, really pretty. I moved here to North Carolina and something was missing. It's flat here. This feels a little off. Where I was born, I was born on a hill in a valley with ridges. It's just different landscape. And there's a subjective sense that I am a Tennessean. I miss the mountain, but there's an also an objective sense that I'm a Tennessean. It's on my birth certificate, right? Your union with Jesus Christ has a subjective and an objective dimension. Okay? Subjective dimension with Jesus. You feel Him. You love Him. Your affections are real. But guess what? Sometimes during the pain, your worst moments in life, the subjective Dimension of your union with Christ is really hard to feel. It seems like it's vanished like dust in the wind. And that is when you must lean into the objective reality of your union with Jesus. His name is on your birth certificate. You are in Him. You are together. You cannot be separated. It's an ontological reality that you are in Jesus. That means you can sing a song with Him. Now very specifically, I'm going to tell you how this might work with a couple of different emotions that come out of this psalm and a couple of different states of mind that we find ourselves in in the midst of pain. And I want to speak here in terms of echoes. So you're praying through this psalm. What I don't expect is you to say, ah, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. So when I read the psalm, it's going to be happy. That's not what I want. Not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying at your darkest moments, when you're on your knees and you're pleading with God, there are some echoes that you can feel. Some spiritual realities that the Spirit might grant you as you bob up every once in a while from the darkness to hope in God. Here's a couple of them. First, let's look at this theme of isolation and rejection and aloneness that permeates this song. How can I sing that song in my life with Jesus? Well, here's one way. Because of your union with Jesus, you now belong with Him. He can give you a sense, an echo of belonging even when you are most lonely. There's a hymn writer, gospel songwriter, Norman Clayton, born a long time ago. 
Norman Clayton began leading worship in his church at age 12. They used to do it by organ. So little 12-year-old Norman began writing songs and leading worship at 12. And it's sad that he continued to lead worship for the next 75 years. Died at 89. Got that, J.D.? Got it? I expect it. That's the guy I want to hear from, right? He wrote these words in one of his most famous songs called, Now I Belong to Jesus. Listen. He shares this. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for all eternity. That's an echo that you can hear when you commune with God in the midst of your pain because of the glorious work of Christ. You can sing with Jesus a song of belonging. Old Testament scholar Mark Futato, he says this about how this can shape our current prayers to God in our darkest hours. He writes this, Now you can cry out to God and you can speak of abandonment. That's what, don't be scared to speak of feeling abandoned. That's what the psalmist does. You can now speak of feeling abandoned as a word of faith because you know you will never be abandoned like Jesus on the cross. You'll never sink that low. It's a word of faith to speak of how you feel so lonely. See how that changes the tone of your prayers? It's only through singing with Jesus that we can hit our target. Where we can say honestly, why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil, hoping God? Another emotion or state of mind that's felt in this psalm and we feel in our lowest moments might be just called despondency. you felt that if you've ever gone through grief despondency. The psalmist says it's like deep, calling to deep, a conversation, deep talking to deep, or tears are your food. That's not abandonment talk, that's despondency type talk. How can we pray through a psalm for help? There's a writer at Southern Seminary, Jim Smith, I remember reading one time he wrote about the popular TV show American Idol. And he said, I love to watch this show. If you've ever seen the show, these guys are competing in a singing competition. And it's so intense because one wrong note and you're off the show. But if you nail it, it could totally start a career in show business, right? So it's intense and they're grinding and they're working so hard together. And this writer said, I love to watch that show, but the competition is not my favorite part. My favorite part is at the end After they declare a winner, the winner shall come out and she'll sing a last song. And no longer is she trying to earn something, but she's singing from freedom, from having been set free of all the grind. And it's so sweet. And that's a notion, that's an echo that you can feel as you're singing with Jesus. The grind and the endurance and the pain will not last forever. It has an end point. 
And in fact, you are the victor over it. You have won because Jesus has won. You can sing together. And because of what Christ has accomplished, I just want to say that when you pray, listen for an echo that says, this will not always be. Alright, that's the echo of your praise and your prayer and your supplication rising to the throne of Revelation 12. Rising to the throne in Revelation 21. It reverberates back to you. And it has the promise. And the promise is, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new new. That is to say, as deep as the darkness is now, it will one day be reversed. Turned on its head, right side up. And you will be with God and pain will be no more. So this week, maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you're in the darkest hour. I pray I pray that you'll go to God. If not, may this week be a week of preparation where you encounter the Psalms and you sing a song to Jesus and you sing a song by Jesus and you're able to sing a song with Jesus as we prepare to face life's darkest moments. Let's pray together. God, I I do pray. These prayers seem a little bruised here. When we're in the pain, we see shades of deep blues and purples. But we also have the hope that bruises tend to heal. And one day, Because we're united to Christ, you will come and you will make all things new. God, for every single one of us who is going to face deep pain and suffering, I pray you come to us. Don't let us go. Hold on to us. And as we pray, echo back the truths and the realities of this psalm and of what Christ has accomplished for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. 